Our God, would you help us to love your word because your word is life, your word is truth, your word comes from you. Help us to see it this way, that as we hear now these words, we are hearing from the voice of God. Help us then to listen to hear with open ears and open hearts. Guide us by your spirit then so that we might come to love you. You're a good God, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12. I'll start reading in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, that there's no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. You can hear from the end of it, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is now a series. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, we're reading through Mark's gospel. The last three Sundays have been three separate times in which the religious authorities are challenging Jesus on particular things. The first, they challenge him with, uh, on his authority. The second, they challenge him on his ethics. The third, they challenge him on his doctrine. If that sounds uh, stodgy, you can go back and listen to those if you're interested. But here... This question now is a little different. The scribe that comes up, you can see it at the beginning, it's like he's kind of overhearing the conversation that was happening, kind of listening to the argument from the side, sort of watching what's going on, and it says he noticed that Jesus had answered them well, that Jesus' responses had been powerful but also wise. And so he gets what seems to be just curious, In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 22, it says that the scribe uh, said this to test Jesus, which is basically just to see what Jesus would say. So if Jesus is really this wise teacher, there seems to be something to this guy, Jesus. So he asks him a question then. And it's it's a pretty good question. He says, Jesus, which commandment is the greatest commandment? And instead of criticizing the man. Jesus somehow pushed against the others that have challenged him with this question. Jesus' response to this guy is different. At the end, you can hear, he says, 
that Jesus says he's not far from the kingdom of God. He's not there yet. He's not in the kingdom of God, but he's not far from it. He's at least heading in the right direction, whereas the other religious authorities had been shooting their arrows and totally missing the mark, ending up in the weeds. This guy is at least headed toward the target. He's moving toward the bullseye. And we see that in our experiences as Christians. We know that when a person becomes a Christian, there must be at some point a conversion by which a person crosses over from death to life. That happens by repentance and faith, which are founded in the grace of Jesus. And sometimes this faith in a person's heart comes like a light bulb. You know, I I know people like this. They're like, one day, something just like hit me like a ton of bricks and I got it. Not just in my brain, it sunk down deep. That faith just snapped on like a person had flipped on a light switch. That happens sometimes. That's how some are converted. Others have a different experience. The way they see light is more like if you get up really early in the morning before I'm usually up and you look out your window and you can't see the sun yet, but you start to see the glow, sort of the the dawning of the sun on the horizon, that a person sometimes grows slowly in their knowledge, not only of God, but of their own sin, of their own need. A person grows then in their trust, their, their, their need for Jesus, their, their sense of that, their dependence then upon Jesus, and they grow in faith so that at some point they look back at their life and go, I, I believe. Somewhere along the way he's brought me into this, but, but I believe this now, and they may not even remember the beginning of when the Lord actually brought them over from death to life. That's some other people's experience. And both of those are legitimate experiences. We see that in the scripture, different ways in which the Lord brings people to himself. The scribe here, we don't know exactly what happens to him eventually, but at least here he seems to be seeing the glow on the horizon. He's starting to get it. Now, here's what I wonder. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're on track. But what is it that makes Jesus say that this guy is on track? I mean, if you look at what he says, he says, okay, there's one God, and we're to love God, and we're to love our neighbor. Mostly, in his, the man, the scribe's response, he basically just repeats what Jesus has already said. And if you're married... Even if you're not married, you know that just repeating something does not mean you heard it. My wife is not here, or she would be nodding in the back. I'm sorry, hon. I know. I'm working on it. Just hearing it, even just being able to repeat what is said, does not mean that I got it, necessarily. But there's one detail in here that's in addition to what Jesus has said. When the scribe is talking about it, the, the detail that he adds shows that this scribe really gets it. It's in verse 33. So he's now talking, we're to love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and we're to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now this, here's the end of it, this is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, to love God and to love one's neighbor is more important than sacrifices and offerings. Now, that is a huge, huge, huge statement for a Jew to make. Because we know that sin 
is very serious. It's a violation of God. And when we sin before God, the requirement or the payment for that is bloodshed. And the way that the Lord provided for this in the Old Testament is that he says, I want you to sacrifice these offerings before me. And it will be their blood, not yours. So these sacrifices are the way that the word used is atoned. You will be atoned before God. In other words, you will not receive the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be removed through these sacrifices. The sacrifices are so very important. Now, the problem was that in Old Testament Israel, they had drifted into this idea that if you just brought an animal sacrifice and killed it on the altar and shed its blood, that everything would be all good. We do this. You probably didn't bring an animal sacrifice and rope it downstairs. I hope you didn't. We don't do those things. Uh, but we do versions of this, don't we? I think if I read my Bible more, then it'll be all good. Or if I come to church more, then it'll be all good. Or if I give more money to the church, then everything will be all good. We give versions of sacrifices and think that it will fix everything, and that is not what the Lord wants. Isaiah chapter 1, he says this, starting in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, the people were coming to bring sacrifices, and he's saying, you're just trampling the courts. You're just smushing down grass. You're coming, but it's empty. So what does he require instead? He says later, verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He says, I don't just want blood sacrifices. I want something greater than that. I want the sacrifice of true obedience. Do good, avoid evil, bring justice to the ones who are most vulnerable among you. And Jesus even kicks it up a notch. He says, I don't want just mere obedience from your hands. I want obedience that comes from your heart. Out of all the 613 commands that are in the Old Testament about how we're to obey the Lord, the command that God himself cares about the most, as Jesus has said here, is to love him. Which means that we can't just obey out of obligation, obey out of duty, or obey out of appearances and just making it look nice. He wants us to obey out of love. That's hard. Because it doesn't always work that way. If, uh, let's say the dishes at home need to be done. 
because that's constantly the case in our house. So many dishes, kids and adults, I guess. But let's say I come home every evening and there's dishes to be done. And Laura needs me, wants me to do the dishes. And I come in and I do those dishes and I do them every night. But the whole time I do those dishes, I go, Wah. Right? Grumbling at the act. Is that really what she wants? I mean, on some level, the kitchen's cleaner. So there's something to the actual act of obedience that's better than total disobedience. But that's still not enough. Just doing the dishes is not what she really wants. What Laura wants and is right to want is for me to care about our family. She wants us to love them in such a way that is played out in care and service for each other. In relation to the Lord, it's even more than that. Look, verse 30, when he's talking about the commands, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The Lord says this, I want all of you. I want your complete and total devotion. There is not a category in the scriptures for Easter and Christmas Christians. He wants real devotion, and if we only come half-heartedly, we have to ask ourselves if we really love him at all. Jesus wants our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, the whole self. And this kind of love cannot be divided, but it is multiplied. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus quotes this whole piece in, in citing this command from Deuteronomy 6. He doesn't just say, love the Lord. He backs up to, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. There is no other God. And God will not just take a slice of the pie. He wants the whole pie. He doesn't just want us on Sunday. All seven days belong to him. Now, for humans... If a person, an individual, asks for this sort of exclusive, total love from me, that's called abuse. And that's not love. A person that says, look only at me, don't, don't be with anyone else, only with me all the time, that's abuse. And if you're in that situation, please come talk to me or one of the elders and we want to help you. Now, if a group ask for that sort of total love, complete and total dependence. Only look at us, only us, and no one else outside. That's called supremacy. Political, I know, sorry. We've heard a lot about it in the news, but that's not love either. When, this, when a human or a group of humans asks us for this sort of total love, it's wrong. Because we do not deserve that sort of total love. But that's different for God. God is the maker, the creator. He owns all things. He owns all part of us. So it's good in relationship to God then because he is worthy of this sort of total and undivided love. His love will not be divided. But it will be 
multiplied. So when our love is properly placed upon God, that love will flow into other areas of our lives. So sometimes we think about life sort of like a pyramid, and I'm supposed to put, you know, God on top of the pyramid, and then after maybe there's, you know, family or work or leisure, you know, however we order that, but God's on top, and then there's other things underneath the period. That's not the system. Uh, The scripture talks about our relationship to God more like a fountain, that the love of God really is supposed to trickle down and affect every other area of our lives. So we are to be loving God in and through our families. We're to be loving God in and through our work. We're to be loving God in and through our leisure time, our relationships. When I was in college, and even in high school, this happened too. Maybe it's a thing of the past. I remember uh, there were a few specific times where there were uh, dating couples that broke up because one of them said, "I I think I love my girlfriend more than I love God. Now, there's something in that that's actually kind of lovely, You know, we want the Lord to be our highest love, but it doesn't have to be either or like that. If I love God with all of myself, that love multiplies. So an increase of love for God actually increases my love for other people. It's a good thing then to love my girlfriend, my wife, my spouse, my friend, my neighbor, my enemy even. We'll talk about that in a moment with my whole self. You'll notice that when Jesus is answering this scribe, the question that the scribe asks was this, which commandment is the most important? And Jesus actually answers more than the question asks. The question was, which is most important? And Jesus says, the most important is to love God. And he could have stopped there, because he answered it. But then uh, he follows it with, with this in verse 31. The second is this, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does Jesus add on this extra thing to answer the question? It's because loving God and loving my neighbor are inseparable, and the two flow from one another. Uh, John talks about this in 1 John. 1 John in chapter 4. Starting in verse 19, he says this, We love because he, God, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, you want to grow in your love for God? Good. Start by loving your neighbor. You want to grow in love for your neighbor? Good. Start by loving God. Now, at least on some level, loving God and loving my neighbor, one of those seems easier to me. Because when I look at God, there are things about him that I don't understand that are beyond me. But I know, because God has told us this in his word, that he is good. 
He is holy. He is righteous. He is true. He's the epitome, he is the epitome of, of justice and mercy and all that is good. Our God is lovely, worth loving. That's different than my neighbor, who's less lovely. I mean, my neighbor, not actual neighbors, I know you're in the room, broader neighbor is annoying. They get under my skin. They drive too fast or too slow. My neighbor sometimes lies to me, takes advantage of me, slanders me. My neighbor sometimes marches with tiki torches and words of hate and contempt. And the Lord says, love your neighbor. That doesn't mean that we hold hands and sing and just ignore wrong things that are happening. It's much harder than this. Love is so much harder than a mere fight or flight. Love is active, and we are called to love even our enemies, to pray for even those that persecute us. Love means that we offer mercy instead of vengeance. Love means that we offer forgiveness instead of grudges. And love will sometimes be the path of pain instead of the path of ease or comfort. Love costs us something. And that's hard. It's really, it's really hard. In fact, real love will be some of the scariest, dangerous thing we ever do. Because when I actually love, I can be rejected. I can be hurt, cut, bruised, denied. Love hurts. And we should expect love to be hard, shouldn't we? I mean, this is the greatest commandment, after all. Jesus doesn't say, here's the greatest commandment. Don't jaywalk. The greatest commandment has, has guts in it. There's, there's a call here. There's an expectation of, of challenge that would really push us, that it would call us to something far greater than ourselves. And while I want something to call me to this sort of greatness, if I'm honest, I'm not doing so well at loving. I don't do so well at loving our God. And I fail very often at loving my neighbor. Has this happened to you ever that during our time of confession, so we read the prayer of confession together and then we have private prayers and, and, and I kind of sit there and there's the quiet, maybe there's some babies crying or, or other things, but I sit there in the quiet during the private confessions and I'm there to lay out my sin before the Lord and I think, I can't think of anything. It must have been a good week. I didn't steal from anybody. I definitely didn't kill anybody. You know, I, I, I've, I've done all right this week, but if I ask myself during that time of confession, this week or even this morning, have I loved the Lord with all of my heart? The answer is always no. 
I mean, I love mountains. There's lots of things. I love Chipotle. I love Aldi, but I love mountains, right? I, and we just came back from vacation in the mountains, and, and I would drive two days to get to the mountains. I would go out of my way to seek out the things that I love, but would I go out of the way to seek out the Lord? On my best days, my love is half-hearted. On my best days, I'm only close to love. And my sixth grade math teacher used to say, close only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. Or more seriously, close will only get us not far from the kingdom, but still outside of the kingdom, still under condemnation. And that's very bad news. Even if in my whole life, the only sin I commit, this is not the case, but even if it were the case that the only sin in my whole life was my lack of love, I've still committed the greatest sin because I violated the greatest commandment. That's the reason, by the way, why we have earned hell. Not only hell in the afterlife, although it's also that, but hell-ish, if I can use that word, it seems cavalier, but hell-ish in this life, because honestly, who wants to be around a person who doesn't love? That's awful. A person who doesn't love really doesn't want to be in heaven anyway, because that's the place where we will love God in fullness and love each other in fullness. So that's heavy. Now, my question is this. If it's really true that I fail this much in my love, if I were the scribe, I'd want to ask Jesus a follow-up question. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor, he says. I'd want to ask Jesus this. How, then, do I change what I love I mean, I know how to love. We all know how to love. It's just that we don't love the right things. We don't love good things. So how do I change what I desire? How do I change my affections? Because I have tried to love kale, but it's gross. Sorry, any kale lovers in the house. It's just too bitter. Even if I wanted to love kale, how do I, how do I change that? I think Jesus answers that here. You'll notice in his response when he, there's a call and a command. The call is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And then he gives a command, you shall love. Jesus treats love as something that can be commanded. That is fascinating to me. Because that's so different from the way that we treat love. We treat love as primarily, I don't know how to word this, a mood or a state of mind, maybe. Love is something I can fall into or fall out of. Love is something that is kind of dependent upon my circumstances. Love, you know, I might not be feeling it. So some will push on me and say, wait, is Jesus, if Jesus is commanding me to love and I'm not really feeling it, isn't it hypocritical if I'm not feeling it? 
The answer is no. Here's why. A hypocrite pretends to love. A Christian knows that he's not loving, at least on his own. That's something that makes us so different from every other faith. Christians square one as we say, Lord, I am a sinner. I violate all of your laws all of the time. And then the Christian confesses that to the Lord and repents by the grace of Jesus and says, Lord, I have nothing to give you that's good in myself, but I, I, I want you on some level. I want, you to, I want you to change me. I want you to make me different. I want you to change my affections, my desires, my loves. Lord Jesus, shape me, mold me, make me different. Help me to love differently anyway, even today. And slowly start to be able to see a little bit of light on the horizon. As we're loving anyway, trying, failing, picking up again, depending on Jesus' grace, the sun comes up and our love becomes real love. It's then that we see that our loves are actually the product or the outcome of something that God has already done. Love is the fruit of a tree that God has already grown. Love comes from a heart that God has already changed. Last place uh, that I'll go here, oops, Ezekiel in chapter 36. Ah, I love this. I need to hear this very often, and I say these things to myself regularly. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. This is God himself speaking here. He says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all of the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Do you hear it in there? By by God's grace alone, by the mercy of Jesus, he takes a heart in us that is rock hard, made of stone, and he crumbles it, and he pulls it out and puts in our chest a heart that beats, a heart that pumps blood again. The amazing part about this is that Jesus does this while we were still sinners. While we still had hard hearts, while we still did not love him, Jesus loved us first, even when it hurt, even when it grieved him, even when he was rejected, cut, denied. Jesus took hell itself in our place. So it's his steadfast love that really changes our hearts. It's his blood that pumps in our veins, that changes our affections, that helps us to grow in loving the things that he loves. So, 
when we struggle to love, and we will, probably this afternoon we will, when we struggle to love, we, a Christian, doesn't look inward for strength. We look upward. We look to our God. We trust in the Lord who has self-sacrificed in love for us. We look to the Lord, our God, who is love. Would you please pray with me? Our God, you've told us that your steadfast love endures forever. And even though we don't understand why you would love uh, people like us who are so uh, often self-centered, occupied with our own ways and habits, centered on ourselves, you've loved us. Help us to see this and to believe, then to follow after you in love, because our love will waver without you. Thank you for being our God. And we trust in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.